Hello and welcome to the Curious Coaches Club. This week's guest is Simon Hartley. Simon is a performance coach to world champions and world record holders, as well as being an acclaimed author and speaker. Like us, he's an interest in finding out about what differentiates the world's best. He'll be providing insight into how to develop the mental game of your athletes and players. I hope you enjoy listening. Morning, Simon. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Um, great, great to have you on. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast. Very welcome. So, for those who don't know you, Simon, can you tell us a little bit about your, your background? Because it is quite extensive. Um, t- tell us about yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, my background is sports psychology, and um, it's something I've been doing now for 25 plus years um i started working exclusively with sports teams and athletes when i came out of university you know i pretty much worked with sports teams and athletes um exclusively probably for five six seven years um and then started using exactly the same techniques and approaches outside of sport um it it dawned on me actually that what I called sports psychology isn't really sports psychology it's really human psychology Um, I was only using it in sports so I thought of it that way and you know I'd been through a sports science degree and they call it sports psychology but the truth is actually the same stuff applies outside of sport too Um, so I've started applying it outside of sport Um, I also one of my real fascinations from fairly early on was to understand what differentiated the very very best that I was working with from everybody else. Yeah. Um, how do they think differently? What do they do differently? So um, I, I had a real fascination for understanding world-class performance mm. and what differentiates world-class performance. So uh, I embarked on a, a bit of a journey, um, probably you know, 15, 20 years ago now, um, to, to figure out what differentiates the very, very best. Um, understand the principles and then help everybody else adopt those same principles. Right, and, and what sort of... Um... What sort of sports have you worked in, Simon? Oh, a, a vast array. Um, I mean, I worked in the Olympic programmes for a while, and it was everything from sort of archery to weightlifting on the alphabetical spectrum, um, male, female, Olympic, Paralympic, um, professional sports, football, rugby, well, both codes of rugby, cricket, um, uh, golf, tennis, squash, motorsports, you know, a, a vast, vast array of sports over the course of the last 20-odd years. It's really interesting that the, the, the principles, there's, there's a lot in common then, is there, across, you know, the principles of um, elite performance? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it boils down to the fact that we're all humans. Yeah. And whilst we're all different um, and we need to kind of appreciate our own uniqueness, there's an awful lot that's the same. Um, and, you know, the sort of the, the base principles and the base ingredients that make our mental game work are the same for anybody. Um, you know, motivation, for example, we're motivated differently. Different people have got different motivational drivers, but motivation is critical for everybody. Um, so, you know, those, those key components of focus, confidence, motivation, things like that, they are um, essentials, kind of like bread and butter almost for everybody's mental game. I was listening to something the other day and Sam Allardyce actually, he was, he was talking about, um, you know, the, the psychological side of, of sport and the support that's in place. And he, he was commenting mm. on the fact that, you know, at a club, you might have numerous technical staff, you might have numerous uh, physical support staff, fitness staff, but you might have one psychologist. 
mm. for everyone. No, normally part-time, yeah. Yeah, normally part-time <laughs> as well. So yeah. do you think this is a real neglected area in terms of um, support that we offer athletes? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, and certainly when I look at, like Sam said, I mean, Sam was one of the very, very first people um, in, in UK sport, really, in professional sport, to embrace sports psychology. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a, a real early pioneer. Um, so I know he appreciates it. Um, but I think it, it's a little bit different sometimes. You know, sports psychology is viewed a little bit differently. Um, I think for a long time it struggled because early sports psychologists didn't provide as much value as people thought they would. Um, and coaches ended up kind of concluding, well, I can do a lot of this stuff myself. A lot of it's yeah. just uh, common sense. And, and it, it sort of, it's different than physiotherapy, for example, because coaches don't think they know physiotherapy. No. Um, so, you know, we, obviously we need a physiotherapist and uh, the strength and conditioning, uh, when that started to take off again, sort of 20 odd years ago, there were some guys who just got people running around cones and that's kind of fine, but the stuff in the weights room, well, coaches are uncomfortable in that area. So we need somebody to help them with the weights because they don't, we don't, you know, we're football coaches. We don't really understand the weights room. Um, so there was a sort of a distinction between what coaches were comfortable doing and felt that they had some expertise in and the areas that they didn't. So of course they employed support staff in those areas. And as, you know, now you look at things like, and performance analysis and lots of coaches will go oh wow ha yeah that that looks like technical computer stuff um yeah. you, you you guys need to do that just give me the information um whereas you know I, i've had um lots of conversations with uh, premier league football managers and and head coaches who have said you know what i kind of i am the sports psychologist here you know i, I remember when i first worked um for, for sunderland in the premiership um Peter Reid would say that openly, you know, I am the sports psychologist here. Yeah. And the truth is they kind of are. Yeah. Um, and there are some areas that they, they're always going to be far better than a sports psychologist. They're probably going to know the players more deeply. They're going to, they're going to know those little nuances about players that sports psych coming into a club couldn't know. So actually they've got more expertise in some areas. The trouble is they've got less in others. Yeah. And a good yeah. sports psych will fill in those gaps that the coach isn't necessarily quite so good at, they're not quite so well versed in. So that, you know, I, I often, when I, when I work in elite sporting environments, I'll say to the coach, almost my job is to make you a better sports psychologist in those areas. Nice. You know, I want to make myself redundant on that level. You know, I want to be able to help you to, be, to become more expert in those areas, to understand those better, be more complete in those areas. Um, there are some bits that you know if, if i'm working one-to-one -one with players um and it's the sort of the confidential environment that we create and that that's a separate sort of uh, dimension to it but when it comes to uh, building the culture um and and the, the sort of the psychology work they can do through coaching my job is to empower them so that they can do it yeah. not to do it for them yeah okay that's really interesting so in terms of mental toughness and it's something that's referred to a lot um as being really important um you know within within all sports um how would you define it and and why would you say it is so important as a as an attribute mm. uh, i think mental toughness is is sort of become an umbrella term yeah um 
Um, and, and therefore, unfortunately, you know, it sort of means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. If you just type the words into Google and looked at all of the different definitions, there's quite a wide range of definitions as to what constitutes mental toughness. But to me, it's got three sort of critical components. Uh, it's got tenacity. This is our ability to just keep going and not quit. You know, even when every fibre in our being is begging us to stop, we we don't quit. We just keep going. And I've, I've come to understand it's our ability actually to navigate what I call the quit point. That point where you are really tempted to give up. But, you know, if you can navigate that and get through to the other side, then you're developing real tenacity. Sure. Um, so that's that's one component. Resilience is another. Um, this is uh, our, I call it also our bank's back ability. You know, we hit we hit real adversity, we hit challenges, we hit potholes in the road and all the rest of it. A lot of the time those can floor us. Yes. Whether we get back up or not is really dictated by our resilience. Okay. Yeah. Um, so resilience is our second component. Um, and the ability to kind of weather a storm, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and lots of people have had to show a lot of resilience over the past 12 months. Yeah. Um, and the third component is composure, which is our ability to make really great decisions and perform well, execute really well, whatever's going on around us. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if you were looking at a sports contest, there are moments where you tend to see that composure come out. Uh, it's a penalty shootout. And, and actually, the skill isn't particularly difficult. What's difficult is to keep your head right in that moment. Yeah. Um, and this is where you really see composure. Or on a golf course, when it's that last putt of a US Masters or a, a Ryder Cup or whatever. And it's, it's actually a fairly simple putt. Yeah. But in that pressure cooker moment, can you execute the skill is the big question. Yeah. And I suppose as well, can you keep your composure if you're being provoked as well? You know, because particularly in team sports you know key moments can you know be when a when a, maybe a player gets sent off um, mm. thinking about you know the, the Beckham one in the France World Cup in 1998 yeah he yeah able to keep his composure was he when he was kicked by you know, yeah completely I mean, the other area where I've seen it a lot is um when there's a tight contest and I used to watch um particularly lots of rugby yeah. and Two teams would be neck and neck for 60 odd minutes of the contest. Yeah. And then one team would try and force it. They would not stick to the game plan. They threw the game plan out the window. They used to force things that probably weren't there, you know, um, throw passes that weren't really there. Um, try and, you know, it's, it's like they, they couldn't just stick to the game plan and see the game through. And because of that, they ended up, it's almost like, you know, they, they lost it rather than the other team won it. Um, I also watched, um, uh, it was a bit of an evolution in Andy Murray's performance that I saw, giving the, the opposition the ability to lose. Rather than, rather than trying to play the winner, keep the rally going, keep putting pressure on the opposition and wait for them to make the mistake. Sure. Uh, th and this is also part of composure. Yes. Um, being able to make those really great decisions. No, that's really interesting. So how how is it developed then, Simon? How can we how can we develop mental toughness? So I I mean I've got a five-step process that I started to develop. I was initially challenged by a US soccer organization who essentially said to me, This mental toughness stuff sounds really interesting. We know we need it, but we don't know how to develop it. Um, could you give us, you know, like a process around it? 
And I started to pull together all that I'd learned about mental toughness, not just in sport, but when I was world, um, researching world-class individuals, um, I researched a mountaineer and a polar explorer, a Michelin star chef, a US Navy SEAL, SAS, you know, major. And, yeah. and I was talking to them all about mental toughness and how they develop it. And actually, whether they were a Michelin star chef or a polar explorer or a mountaineer or whatever, it was the same process. So I sort of boiled it down into five steps. The first of these steps is to truly understand what mental toughness is and isn't. Um, first, it's not chest beating. It's not shouting and screaming and waving your fists around. It's, that's not mental toughness. Um, often mental toughness can be quiet. Um, you know, it's, it's assured. Um, it's, it's almost the ability to know that you don't have to intimidate the opposition. Just don't be intimidated yourself. Yeah um so so it's understanding what it is and isn't but also understanding it on a personal level so understanding when am i at my toughest what am i like when i'm at my toughest and mm. um, what am i like when i'm at my most resilient when am i not so resilient um when do i give up when don't i give up you know understanding it personally because yeah. when we understand on and understand it excuse me on that level then we can start to engineer it we can we can take control of it but if we don't really understand it we can't so this is the foundation step. The second is to be consistently at our best. I call it consistent optimal performance. Um, and this really means getting the essentials of our mental game right. So we're consistently focused, confident, and motivated. Um, and we understand how to manage our focus, confidence, and motivation, how to engineer those. So that again, it doesn't really matter what's happening around us. We can still focus on the right thing at the right time. We can control our own confidence and take mastery over our own motivation. Right. So, so that's, that's a sort of critical second step. Because if we haven't got that, we can't perform well in the whirlwind. Because, you know, if you can't perform well in normal conditions, you're not going to be able to perform well in a, in a critical situation or, you know, kind of under pressure. Yeah. Um, so that's the second step. The third is to take complete accountability and responsibility for your own performance. So we, it's that point where you don't try and blame anything or anybody. You don't look to blame. Um, you don't want to blame. You, so many times, I'm sure you've, you've heard the same, you know, you'll, you'll see even elite coaches um, interviewed on TV about the performance. And the first thing they do is blame the referee. Yeah, yeah. And you think, well, that's not taking responsibility, is it? No. Because if it's the referee's fault, you can't do anything about it. Therefore, you haven't got any control. That's right. So we have to get to a point of saying, forget the result, forget the outcome. What did I do? How well did I do it? What will I do better next time? Or what could I do better next time? How can I improve? Got to get it back to that level in order to take proper control over our performance. Um, so that's the third step. The fourth is to start really embracing our discomfort zone. Um, most people are aware of their comfort zones and discomfort zones. Yeah, There's a, a, a sort of, there's a, a little bit of a boundary. It's not a, a fixed boundary. It's, it's more like a little spectrum between comfort zone and discomfort. Some people prefer the cozy center of the comfort zone. You know, they, they like to stick to the stuff that they're familiar with, that they can do easily. They're not going to make a mistake. They're not going to look stupid, you know, so that's, that's all within the comfort zone. The, stuff they look good at. the discomfort zone. Sorry. The stuff they look good at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is the stuff they look good at. Yeah. The discomfort zone is the opposite, of course. So this is the stuff we're not familiar with. It's right on the edge of our skills base. We make mistakes out there. We fail. We probably look bad. 
but that's the that's the zone in which we get better um and it's to continually be able to step into discomfort because what happens is if we stay in our discomfort zone for long enough the comfort zone grows and encompasses the stuff that we didn't used to be able to do but we can now and if we keep stepping we keep expanding our skills um the other important point is it's not just the skills that we grow we also grow a belief and that's the belief that just because we can't do it right now it doesn't mean we never will all we've got to do is keep working on it and the comfort zone will catch up sure. so you know if, if you give somebody who's used to stepping into discomfort if you give them a challenge they'll go oh go on then i'll give it a go the thing is the opposite is also true if you only stay in the cozy center your comfort zone shrinks and solidifies around you and not only do you not grow your skills you also develop a different belief which is if i can't do it right now i probably never will and i might try it a couple of times but if i fail i'll conclude i can't do it anyway and i'll stop trying yeah so if you're not going forwards you're actually going backwards aren't you completely yeah and there's i'm sure you've come across these two terms there was a, a researcher called carol dweck that created two terms uh, growth mindset and fixed mindset yes. well the growth mindset comes when we continually step into our discomfort zone right, that's yeah. the belief that we just need to try it give it a go keep working on it and we'll probably you know we'll become better at it we not might not become great but we'll become better yeah. the fixed mindset is if i can't do it right now i probably never will so there's no point in trying and that happens when we don't venture near the boundary of our comfort zone, when we stay towards the cozy center. Mm -hmm. So that's the critical fourth step. And then the fifth step, which is almost like the icing on the cake, is to really challenge ourselves to develop tenacity, resilience and composure. And this happens when we really embrace the moment where, for example, in tenacity, that moment we hit the quit point mm -hmm. and we're really tempted to back off. In that moment, what do we choose? Do we choose to back off or do we choose to keep pushing? Okay. Uh, every time we hit that point and make another choice, we're going to dictate whether we become a more tenacious person or a less tenacious person. Uh, it's the same with resilience. So that moment when we're face down on the floor and we're wondering, do I want to get back up? Can I get back up? It seems too hard. I fail. It hurt. In that moment, do we get back up again? And, and, consistently the choices we make over time will dictate whether we become a more resilient person or a less resilient person so so it's understanding our choice in that moment is going to shape our our tenacity resilience composure mental toughness um, but that's really the kind of like i said the icing on the cake if we can build these four um really strong steps underneath it foundational steps then by the time we get there actually we're, we're already more than halfway there probably you know, we're, we're already in that mode where we are taking on those challenges and we are developing these characteristics. That's really interesting, Simon. So I'm thinking about a scenario where we've got a, a, a player or an athlete who is, is experiencing a loss of confidence. And obviously this is something that can happen to anyone at any stage, really. And it, mm. it will happen at some point. What can we do to help a player rediscover their confidence? Yeah, it's a really good question because it, it is one of those critical components. Um, it's, it's got such a massive impact on performance. The first thing that I would sort of recognize is that focus, confidence and motivation live together. Right. So if we want to help somebody become more confident, we have to work on focus and motivation as well. 
okay. um, because they, they don't live in isolation. They all kind of uh, feed each other, as it were. They're interdependent, these, right. these uh, three little qualities. Um, so it, the first step for me would be to help them focus on the right thing at the right time. Okay. Um, understand the processes, focus on the processes, let the outcome take care of itself and focus on the next process, the one that's right in front of you. So, and there's always one little thing, uh, you, you know, people often tie themselves in knots when they're trying to focus on far too many things at the same time. And they're yeah. trying to engineer outcomes instead of focus on processes and execute processes. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever it is, the next tackle, the next header, the next pass, the next, whatever it yeah. is, just focus on that and do that one really well. And then do the next one really well. And then do the next one really well. Yeah. And what ends up happening is you, you see confidence is grounded in evidence. So, you know, we can't, we can't sit there and, and just kind of hope ourselves confident. We can't do that. You know, I, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. It's not, we, we're not going to become confident with that. And if the coach says you're really good, that's not going to do it either. No, it's not enough. We need to develop the evidence for ourselves, and by continually performing well. So when we're focused on the right thing at the right time, we perform really well in that moment. Mm. And if we can do that moment after moment after moment, we then build up the evidence that says, actually, I can do this stuff. Okay. I can make that pass. I can make that header. I can make that tackle. Actually, I can do this stuff. That's yeah. the evidence. Yeah. And the evidence therefore informs our confidence and fuels our confidence. Because um, sometimes you seem to get players or athletes that they, they sort of try even harder, don't they? So they, you know, they, 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 they become aware that they're not doing very well or they've, they've made some mistakes and then they try even harder to correct them. And, and it sort of, doesn't work does it <laughs> often completely and you know i i talk about these because focus confidence and motivation work together i i call that the base of a, a positive performance spiral so yeah. focus feeds confidence confidence feeds motivation because obviously when we're good at stuff and we know we're good at stuff we want to go and do it again and again and again so we yes. we become more motivated yeah. um and that uh, sort of helps us to step outside of our comfort zone because when we're focused confident and motivated we're more likely to take on the challenges if we're not confident and we feel like we're failing we're not going to you know step outside of the comfort zone because that's another opportunity to fail yeah. and, and feel bad about ourselves and look bad and whatever so so you know it all builds up together there's also a negative spiral that usually starts when we're not focused on the right thing at the right time when we're trying to engineer an outcome or um uh, you know when we're sort of trying to focus on too many things at the same time we haven't got our, our focus straight and when we do that we make a mistake most people then beat themselves up um you know we don't like making think too much overthink it and go and make another mistake yes a bigger one this time yeah and and the whole thing starts crashing into a hole yeah so to come back to focusing on the right thing at the right time um, and whichever sport we're playing and not even just sport in life, there's always something that's right in front of you right now. Yes. So if you can focus just on that, the next tackle, the next pass or in cricket, play the next shot or whatever, um, just focus on doing that. And it comes down to the really, really simple stuff. If you're a batsman in cricket, just watch the ball. That's it. Just watch the ball really closely and let your body do the rest. Yeah. You already know how to hit the ball. Yeah. All you've got to do is watch it and then your body will hit it. It'll do the rest. Yeah. No, so, really good. I can see how this would apply in a sort of team context or even 
you know, because, you know, like a, a boxer not thinking too many fights ahead or, you know, just focusing on the, the, the fight in mm. front of you and the, the, the team focusing on the next game rather than worrying about the game in three weeks' time. And it's yeah. the same, same principle, I suppose, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, if, you, if we also understand the other things that are kind of foundations for confidence, um, we draw confidence from our preparation. Yes. If we've prepared really well, if we've got a great game plan, we know how to execute the game plan, and we know that our job here is just to go and do that. The job isn't to win. The job is to go out and play as well as we can. So, you know, let's yeah. make sure we've got a great game plan, make sure we know what we're doing, make sure we've practiced it, and when we go in, we feel ready. We feel prepared. Yeah. Um, and if we've done that, brilliant. Let's just go and play. Um, as we come out of the other end... It really helps when we're reviewing our performance to evaluate the performance honestly and objectively, not judge ourselves on the result. I yes. describe this as being able to take back the remote control for our confidence, because yeah. if we would judge it on the result or an outcome or whether, whether somebody was happy or not, that's uncontrollable. You know, the results not in our control. The ref makes decisions. The ref might make some bad decisions might cost us the game. We don't control that bit. We never will. We don't control whether the crowd are pleased or not. You know, we don't control whether the guy in the newspaper writes nice stuff about us or not, or what happens on social media or whatever. We don't control any of that. So leave it. Focus on what we do. How, do, how did we do? How well did we do it? What can we do better next time? Yeah. And go back to that. And it's not judging. So it's not good or bad. I, I, I often talk to people about scrap the good box and the bad box. Let's go back to evaluating, put it on a zero to 10 scale. Mm. Zero means there's nothing good about the performance whatsoever. 10 means it's perfect. It's flawless. You can't improve it. Where is it on that scale? Yeah. Um, and once we've got that, you know, even if it was a four, what made it a four, not a zero? It's cause, so there's some good stuff we're going to keep that made it a four, not zero. Yeah. What's the difference between four and 10? What's the stuff we can work on? And then the question is not how do we get to 10 it's how do we get better than a four what do we need to do what are we going to work on in training this week or yeah. um what, what could you work on in your own time yeah. so that you come back more confident yeah because if there's something you couldn't do very well but you've been practicing it for a week you'll know you're better yes excellent yeah no that's great that's really interesting simon um so a couple more questions what what can coaches do to to balance the need to perform in the here and now with the need to make mistakes to learn and grow mm. especially in elite sport i think that's something that's really important yeah i completely agree um so there, there are a couple of things that i think really truly elite world-class organizations and performers have started to understand um one of the most powerful questions is when okay. when can we really kind of push the boundaries and make the mistakes when is a safe time to do that almost right um so for an Olympic programs, um, if you've got a four year cycle, many Olympic programs will say years one and two, we can make loads of mistakes. We're really going to shake this thing up. We're okay. going to take the game plan apart, put it back together, you know, and, uh, and really start experimenting, pushing the boundaries, etc. In the fourth year, we're trying to refine it down so that we can go out there and, and just produce this performance with our eyes closed in a hurricane, you know, so that so we've, we've got everything nailed down but for the first two years we're going to take everything apart and then put it back together again yeah. and even with you know things that aren't as long as a four-year cycle there are times in a in a football season where you can say 
let's spend this time making the mistakes. Let's experiment with it. Let's try some new stuff, yeah. see what works, see what doesn't. I mean, even if you break down your week, you might say, look, we're going to kind of refine the game plan on Thursday afternoon and Friday or whatever. Yeah. But Monday and Tuesday, we're, we're going to, we're going to experiment with some things and yeah. make some mistakes and try new things. And yeah. um, so there's some safe times to do it okay. equally. Um, you know, when players are being truly creative, they'll try something in the moment that they probably have never planned. It might work. It might not. Mm. And if that's the culture that we're trying to create, we, we still embrace that. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, England cricket were really good at doing this in their one day game. Um, uh, sort of, couple of years out from the world cup they were getting criticized because they you know the perception in the media was that players were taking too many risks yeah i remember that. they they said it's in our game plan this is how we want to play this is the brand we're trying to play yeah. we want players to do this um and actually whilst it's a one-day international game and they kind of are important we're building up to a world cup in their four-year cycle they were in about year two of a four-year cycle and say this we're trying to develop the game plan we need to do this in a match situation. Yeah. And yeah. even though there are TV cameras here and people are judging us and writing about us in newspapers on me social media and whatever, this is what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, so, so they were pretty clear about that and gave the players license um, to, to work those elements of their game out so that when they came to the World Cup, they were in the best possible position. Um, so, so that when is quite an important question. But also, I think... World-class organizations understand there are two things that they're always trying to do in tandem. One is perform as well as we can. And the yeah. second one is learn as much as we can. Okay. Yeah. And philosophically, actually it, it sort of, it means that practice and match day aren't that different. Mm. So, uh, and, and one of the phrases I heard years and years and years ago from a truly world-class coach was um, play like you practice and practice like you play. Yeah. It yeah. shouldn't be that much difference between the two, really. No. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, there's, there's a dual focus on that. Firstly, practice shouldn't be at 50%. It should be at 100%. Yes. Because if we want to play at 100%, we need to practice at 100%. So, so all of that intensity needs to be there as if it was a match day. All the seriousness, the urgency, the everything needs to be there as if it was a match day. And on match day... We, we shouldn't see it differently. We should go out there and do exactly what we do on practice day. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, this, this is something that I'm, I'm really curious to find out about, Simon. Can, can we support players to become more resilient or is character out of our influence? You know, I've, I've heard phrases before in football along the lines of see the boy, see the man, you know, we, we, you can tell the character of what he's going to be like later on already. Mm. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? How, to what extent can we shape character? Um, I am a very, very firm believer. All of the evidence I've ever seen tells me that character is continually evolving. Yeah. Um, and as coaches, I think there's an ability to influence it. Absolutely not control it. You know, it's very much up to the player whether they develop their character or not. Yeah. It's under their control, not a coach's control. But, um, and, and I think you used the word, can we support them? Mm. I, th I think support on its own probably won't do it, but in combination with challenge, it will. Right. 
So challenge and support in tandem is a really powerful combination. Um, and one of the one of the difficulties I think when people ask themselves, can we uh, coach character or develop character or whatever, they almost see it like um, somebody's going from nothing to everything. Uh, can they go from being a complete wimp to being incredibly courageous and brave? Well, not in one leap, no. Could they develop courageousness or courage? Could they develop their courage? Yeah, of course they can. But we're going to have to do it in little steps, yeah. not in giant leaps. Yeah. So if they were absolutely petrified of, I don't know, snakes, and we just shoved them into a room full of snakes, are they going to come out more courageous? Probably not, no. <laughs> I, I mean, it would be a bit of a freak occurrence if they did. Yeah. But, but actually, could we gradually build up their courage over time? Yeah, of course we can. But we need to do it by creating a staircase of little challenges. Break the challenge down into a series of steps and say, can you take the first step? If you can do that consistently, here's the second step. Here's the third step. Here's the fourth step. And the, uh, the, the challenge within that for coaches is we have to actually understand how to break this down and give them a little step at a time. And the support bit is um, maybe a little bit of encouragement, but it's, it's more than that. I think it's being able to reflect with them and help them learn how to uh, approach the challenge differently, how to make different choices when they face that challenge. Because fundamentally, it's the choices we make when we hit the challenges that shape our character. So for courage, that point when we're facing the thing we're scared of, we have a choice. Do we approach the thing we're scared of or back away from it? Yeah. If we take a step towards it, we're developing courage. We're becoming a more courageous person. Um, and every time we step towards the thing we're scared of, we become even more courageous. So, so it's the ability to you know, maybe just take a step back and reflect with a player okay what what happened what what went through your mind how did you feel if we're faced with that situation again or if we put you back in that challenge again what's going to help you or how can you help yourself to take a step towards it or if you ran away from it last time just hold your ground just don't run just stay there because that would be a that would be progress and then take the tiniest step towards it yeah it sounds a bit like kind of learning anything really in terms of you know, like if you, someone's learning to swim, you, you know, yes, you could chuck them in the deep end and they might work out how to get back to the surface. But mm. generally, you know, seeing with my children learning to swim, it's a sort of step-by-step process, isn't it? With yeah. challenges put in front of them. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, if you, if you looked at it on a, exactly the same sort of phenomenon, but you put it into a, a skills context, this yeah. is, it's like saying, well, they're either talented or they're not. You know, if they come in and they naturally are great at stuff, brilliant. Yeah. We can coach them. If they're not naturally brilliant at it, sorry, you're not going to be a player. And, course, and, yeah. and so characters, it's exactly the same. It's just on a, on a, on a different, it's, it's a different phenomena. You know, we don't, we can't learn it through repetition. We have to learn it by taking on challenges. Um, but the development of it works in the same way. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, when players come to you, they come at different levels, don't they? So there are some who are, you know, really technically proficient in some areas, might be lacking in others. Um, and, and, yeah, it's interesting to think that with, that's something with, with confidence that you could also help them with to grow. And I suppose the, the challenge for coaches is that, you know, there's, there's so many other people and factors that play a part in that 
in that nurturing as well, isn't there? So parents, the you know their their background, their environment that they've been in, that they're currently in, all those things. But um, you know, I, I suppose what you're trying to do is just is just use your time to guide them as much as you can. Would that be right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that their environment will have an impact on them, but it's how they respond to it. I mean, if you if, if you listen to uh, you know a handful of entrepreneurs. Um, and talk about you know where they came from and their background and all the rest of it. You'll you'll find some. I mean, it, or probably better example is you take take a handful of people that have uh, grown up in po- poverty. Yeah. Some end up going to jail and some end up becoming entrepreneurs that are millionaires. And mm. um, but they both started in poverty. And if you ask one, why did you end up in jail? He'll say, well, because I grew up in pov- poverty. And if you ask the entrepreneur, how come you made millions? He'll say, because I grew up in poverty. <laughs> Yeah. And it, so it wasn't the poverty, it was how you responded to it. And it's exactly the same with anything around us. Okay. You know, even, even the significant others that shape, you know, sort of who we are, it's how we respond to those. So, you know, I can remember meeting people in my life and thinking, wow, I, I want to be like you. Um, I can remember meeting other people and thinking, I absolutely don't want to be like you. <laughs> so it wasn't the person, yeah. it was the choice you made as a result of it. It's how you responded to it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think understanding that players have always, and, and people, humans have always got the ability to shape their character. Um, the question really is, are we deciding who we want to be or are we just ending up becoming the person that we are? Um, and and, and the, the, the component that makes the difference is whether we're deliberate and intentional about the choices that we make and who we become. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, that's great, Simon. There's lots more that I'd like to find out, but I'm, I'm going to end it there. Where can, where can we find out more about this stuff? Because I know you've written a few books and you've, you've got a few you know, avenues we can explore. Could you, could you sort of signpost us to, to some further stuff we could look at? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, the, the, the books are all on Amazon, as you can imagine, and probably lots of, lots of other online bookstores. Um, so if you if you kind of threw my name uh, into the Amazon search, uh, Simon Hartley into the Amazon search, hopefully the books will pop up. Um, if you searched Simon Hartley Be World Class, hopefully you'll find our website, which has also got links to the books in, um, yeah. plus a range of uh, digital programs and um, you know free resources, blogs. Um, the YouTube channel is at World Class Simon. Um, and there's a whole load of stuff on the YouTube channel that's, you know, freely available. I'll always post stuff out through my Twitter, which is at World Class Simon. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. You know, as always, we're always everywhere aren't we, on these things these days. That's great. I mean, the master mental toughness book that you've got is, you know, and we've been talking about some of the aspects of that this morning. That's a that's a really, really good one for people to look at. That's a book I constantly you know, dip back into really. I found that particularly useful. So mm. no, that's brilliant, Simon. Thank you again for your time. Um, and I hope you have a really good rest of your day. Thanks, mate. Take care. See you soon. Yeah, bye. Thanks once again for listening. I hope like me, that really got you thinking. For further information, I'd highly recommend getting a copy of Simon's book, Master Mental Toughness, and giving him a follow on Twitter. I'll be back next Monday. Have a great week ahead.